Um, Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to come um, and study your word. Lord, we pray that you would um, teach us and uh, bless us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Yes, David Arm joins us. There's some, oh, yeah, you can see. Oh. <laughs> um, all right. <clears throat> so, uh, I'm calling this series uh, Ten Words. Uh, because in the Hebrew, the word word um, can apply either to a single word or to an entire phrase or even an entire sentence. So one of the traditional names of the Ten Commandments is Decalogue, right? So uh, ten words. And I think there's something really um, elegant and beautiful about that because God is saying, let me tell you, uh, uh, let me summarize for you. Join us. Do we have six? We have one and two. Over there, right? chairs? Yeah. And I think it's really um, elegant way to put it because God is saying, here is everything you need to know to flourish. Here's everything I want to tell you in terms of how I want you to live. And I'm going to tell it to you in just ten words, right? Oh, this is great. I didn't make enough copies, I think. Well, you have little faith. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so, um, I think the natural question comes up, especially in our culture and and, um, in our time, which is, why, why even the law? Like, aren't we beyond the law? Why do we have to focus on the law? And this is the first point I want to make, which is that at the heart of every relationship is law. And Jesus says something very strange, strange to the modern ear, I feel, which is John fourteen fifteen. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And this is very strange to us because we tend to think of law and love as opposed, right? Here's law, here's love, right? Is there really a connection or relationship between them? But Jesus combines them, right? And so let me give you uh, an example. So imagine that you are uh, in a relationship, right? And what is the first thing you do in a relationship? You want to know your your significant other's likes and dislikes, right? Because you want to know, like, what what do they like to do? What do they not like to do? And you could think of that as their law. And and you want to obey obey that law because you love them. Right? You want them to be happy. You want to please them. Imagine that you um, are in a relationship and you know you tell your significant other, you know, here's what's important to me. Um, I hate loud music. You know, when we drive the car, I don't like you turning up the radio. I hate cigarette smoke. It really bothers me. And uh, and here's something really important to me. Um, I need you to be faithful to me. Right? I, I you know, that just devastates me if you were to cheat on me. And the other person says, you know, I I prefer to think of you as someone who likes loud music. <laughs> so every time we drive in the car, for sure, I'm going to blast the stereo as high as I can. And you don't like cigarette smoke? I don't care. And it blows smoke right into your face, right? And then he says, you know, I, I'm the type of person that I definitely want to sleep around. So I'm going to do it. <laughs> um, what would you say to that person? You would say, you don't love me at all, right? 
And this is why Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. Why? Because love, love and law are connected. You cannot separate these two things. If you love someone, you will obey the law. And if you disobey the law, you don't love that person, right? And so it is with God. And so this is why we need to uh, study the Ten Commandments. Um, um, this is why the Ten Commandments are vital. You know, I, I feel like a lot of times people say, well, you know, do we really need to, need to study the Ten Commandments? Because I feel like I intuitively already know them, right? Or maybe people say, you know, I don't think they're really, it's really that important for us to really get down into the nitty-gritty and learn the Ten Commandments and really study them, right? And if you say that, it's like in a relationship where you're trying to tell the other person your likes and dislikes. This is what I value. This is what's important to me. And then the other person goes, I don't want to hear it. No, no, but, but let me tell you about myself. Let me tell you what I like. No words. <laughs> Let's just enjoy this moment. If we don't study the Bible, if we don't study his law, God's law, if we don't take it seriously, then we're saying to God, I want to be in a relationship with you. No talking, please. <laughs> Don't tell me what you like and dislike, right? Um, so we must not have a cavalier attitude. Um, so that's my first point, which is a way for us to be really excited and interested and eager to, to learn God's <laughs> law. So, second point. Um, and so what does the law tell us? What does the law teach us? It teaches us two things. The first thing that the law teaches us is that we have a broken relationship. Um, because the law shows us that we we are violating God, right? Because we break the law all the time. So Romans 3.20, let me have Andrew read this passage. Uh, through the law comes knowledge of sin. Yeah, through the law comes knowledge of sin so that when we behold the law, when we study the law, we clearly see that we've wronged God. And in that sense, uh, theologians have called the law like a mirror, right? Um, a lot of times, you don't know what you look like. So you have to stand in front of the mirror. And you're like, oh, this is what I look like, right? Um, if you have a huge pimple, a huge, red, throbbing, angry pimple, you don't necessarily know that you have it until you stand in front of the mirror. And then you're like, oh, dear, <laughs> um, what shall I do? I guess I'll skip school or something. But um, um, so that's what the law does. The law shows us what we really look like. And when we stand in front of the law, we look hideous, right? We see that we're, our, our relationship with God is, is broken. And so that's the first thing, uh, which is that it shows that we have a broken relationship. It shows that we are sinners. Um, this is very counterintuitive. This goes like completely against the way you would naturally read the law, read the Bible. And I preached on this. Did I preach on it last week? Yes, I did. Luke chapter 10. Um, this is a very, very paradoxical, strange passage. So Chelsea, can I have you read it to refresh your memories? And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? said to him, what is written in the law, how do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind 
think this through, okay? The law says, this isn't just Jesus, you know, just coming up with it on his own. The law says, do this, obey the law, and you will live. Right? And that's the question that the the, the law expert, the lawyer, was asking. How can I live? How can I have eternal life? How can I be accepted before God in his presence in heaven, right? And the law says, and Jesus says, do it and live. But the whole point that Jesus is trying to make is actually counter to that, which is that if you obey the law, do this, you will die, right? So the point of the law is to kill you. Um, this is very paradoxical um, and, and totally counter to the way most people think. Because if you ask the average person, um, you know, what, if they think about eternity, if they think about heaven, you ask them, you know, do you think you're going to go to heaven? And they say, oh, most assuredly, yes. Well, why is that? And they'll say, because I'm a good person. When they say I'm a good person, what are they saying? Right? They're saying, well, because I believe in this. Do this and you will live. I'm a good person. I obey the good rules, the good laws, and I'm going to live. I'm going to have eternal life. But the whole point is that the law is there to show you that you cannot do it. It shows you that you have a broken relationship. And so, in fact, to obey the law as a means to life will actually kill you. And that's the point of the passage. Um, let, me, let me read to you, or let me, let's go to the second passage, Second Corinthians. Where are we next? Um, Ashley, can I have you read? This is, so let me set this up. Paul's in the middle of, of, a, of, a, of a complicated argument, um, but he's basically comparing the, the new covenant with the old covenant, right? The, um, the, 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 the relationship the church has um, with the law uh, and, uh, with God revealing himself in the church versus in Old Testament Israel, right? So let's let's read Second Corinthians, Ashley. Now the ministry of death has been rendered on stone and with much glory that the Israelites did not hear the voice speaking of the living word. Well, so, let me, so let me stop right there. So carved in letters on stone, what, <coughs> Ashley, do you think Paul is referring to? Yes, right? <laughs> so the Decalogue was carved on tablets of stone, right? So Paul says, remember those laws carved on those stone tablets? What does he call them? Something flowery and beautiful. He calls it a ministry of death, right? Interesting. Um, keep going. I, I think you were at the end of verse 7, right? Which was brought to an end. Yeah, so he's comparing these two ministries, right? The, uh, the, the the commandments given by Moses versus what we have in Christ, right, in the Spirit. And he calls it a ministry of condemnation. So the law says, obey and you will live. But the whole point of the law is to kill you. The whole, the whole point of the law is to condemn you. It's to show us that we're sinners, to show us that we have a broken relationship with God, Right? It's very counterintuitive, right? To obey the law as a means to life is death. That's the point. That's the first thing. So here's the question for you guys. Why? Why to obey the law 
yields death. But why is that? Because isn't the law good? Doesn't the law promise life? Don't make me ask the seminary. Yes, why? So, okay, think of it, think of it like this, right? Um, I'm just going to think of an illustration on the fly. That's always dangerous. Um, think about, like, ah, basketball, right? So let's say you line up, and the basketball coach says, all right, I only want players that could jump really high. So he draws a line on the wall. He says, whoever can touch this line is on my team. So this is the law, right? So... Andrew leaps up and he touches it, <laughs> right? So oh, he's on the team. So then if that's the law, if the law leads to life, why is Paul saying something crazy? Why is Jesus saying something crazy? Which is he's saying the law leads to death. Tracy? See, any motion and I will <laughs> zone in on it. <laughs> well, is he talking about physical death? Yes, he's talking about everything. Spiritual, physical Death, death, death. Is it like because that's what we focus on, like Pharisees, where we're like we don't like to feel the reliance of our kind of like what Joe was saying that we need Christ as our Savior, like He died for us, but instead, like that becomes uh, our Savior, the law, right? Yes. Okay, you're <laughs> leaping ahead. Very good to the end of what where I, I did want to go, but <laughs> but this is the good point, job. okay? <laughs> All right, so let me let me let me illustrate it a little bit better, okay? So here's the line that we have to touch. This is where we are. Leap and touch the line. It's impossible. It is impossible. Why? Well, the line is too high, but. The coach is just unreasonable, right? God, I can't. No one can do this. Yeah, you can't live perfect lives according to the law. Why? Because we're broken. Jesus can do it. We're not Jesus. Yes, right? The reason why the law leads to death is because of our fallen nature. We're sinners. When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, he plunged us into this corrupt nature, and we cannot do it. Right? It's like, I suppose, to further this analogy, we have, like, broken legs. We, we just can't do it. We're lying on the ground. Coach says, go ahead and touch that line. <laughs> I, I, I can't even move my arm, right? Um, so, so the law leads to death, um, but it's even deeper than that. So where are we? Um, Roxanne, can I have you read Romans chapter 7? So let me set it up for you again. So Paul is writing here, and he says, you know, we intuitively think that the law reduces sinfulness, right? Because the law says things like, don't murder, <laughs> don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't steal. So you would think, ah, this, these laws will help us to be better people. But Paul actually makes the opposite argument. He says the law actually increases sinfulness. It makes the situation worse. So can I have you read Romans chapter 7? I, there's, you can, guys can just sit right here. Okay, let me, let me stop you there, right? So Paul is saying something that we've already reviewed, which is that 
through the law comes knowledge of sin, right? The law tells us that we're sinners. But Paul is actually saying something even deeper than that. Keep going, verse 8. Is this not the craziest thing you've ever read? This is insane. I remember so vividly reading in seminary. I was assigned this reading, talking about what is the role of the law, relationship of the law and sin. And I was reading this, a bit of commentary on this verse. And I was like, holy smokes, this is like the most amazing thing I've ever read. I never even noticed it before. Because what is Paul saying? Paul is saying... The law came, and it didn't just curtail or mitigate or minimize sin. It actually inflamed it up. It made it even more alive, right? Like sin is like this sleeping dragon, and the, and the law comes, and the dragon's like, Rah! right? And it's alive, and it flexes its muscles. And therefore, the law not only kills you, the law is actually an ally of sin, Right? Um, sin uses the law to manifest itself. Paul Paul gives an example of covetousness, right? He didn't even know what it was to covet. And then he heard the law, read the law, do not covet. He's like, I, that sounds good. I want to covet. Um, there's an illustration um, that Augustine gives, Augustine, uh, uh, St. Augustine in his confessions. He says that he had a neighbor who had a, a pear tree. And, you know, uh, uh, he put a big fence around the pear tree so no one can trespass and steal this pear, these pears. And one day, he's like, I want to steal that pear. He wasn't even hungry. But he climbed over the fence because simply because it was prohibited, he wanted to do it. Now, if the fence wasn't there, and if the neighbor says, everyone, come one, come all, there's no law here. What do you, no, no prohibitions. Eat what you want. Obviously, he would have just passed by the tree because he didn't care. But he only broke the law because of the, he only broke, he only stole the pear because of the law. That is who we are. Right, the law doesn't make it better; it makes it worse. We are worse off for studying the law. Do you guys understand? We're in the deeper hole, um, and therefore moralism. So this is a corollary. Moralism is utterly useless. What is moralism? Moralism is law without without the gospel. I remember um, being in youth group, <laughs> and uh, um, I remember uh, uh, overhearing this discussion of one of the parents saying, I want to the youth pastor, I want you to emphasize um, that you need to study, and then you need to obey your parents. And the pastor was like, but I want to preach them about Christ, I want to preach them grace. And he says, well, that's good and fine, right? but the most important thing is you need to emphasize these two things, right? That's moralism. And that's utterly useless. It has no value. In fact, it makes things worse. Right? The person without the law is better off than the person with the law without Christ. Because you're just a worse sinner for having heard the law. Because we hate God. And then the law just says, do you want to know, like, if you do this, you're offending God. Oh, yeah? <laughs> okay, I'm going to do it, right? Um, and therefore, the law prepares us for the gospel. And so I have... So, so, so what... 
So the law leads us to the gospel. How does the law lead us to the gospel? Because the law shows us how deep a hole we're in. Um, it strips us of our self-righteousness. It shows us how desperate we are. And therefore, it, sh- it magnifies the grace of God, right? So if this is the holiness of God, th- this is um, where we are, the law increases this distance, right? Most people who acknowledge God is holy and we're sinful think that the gap is this. But as you study the law, you realize it's more like this. Actually, it's, it's, it's infinite, but we're only so, you know, our, our understanding. In fact, as you grow as a Christian, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And therefore, it magnifies grace. It magnifies Christ, right? Um, so the gospel is that you're more sinful than you dare imagine, but you're more loved than you dare hope. That's what the law does. It teaches us that. Any questions before we lead to the second point, the second use of the law? Yes. Oh, I wanted to make a comment that uh, mortalism not only makes you... Um, <clears throat> A worse sinner in uh-huh. terms of magnitude, it changes you in, in kind, which is that you are you become a worse sinner, but you think you are less of a sinner. So ah, you yes. Self conceited. Yes. That's a great point. Yeah. <laughs> so this is even more perverse, right? You become worse, but at the same time, you call it better. You think you're better. Yeah. So you're you're blind. Right? You're in, you're in a hall of mirrors. So it's it's not just in, in terms of magnitude, in terms of kind more twisted into yourself. Yes. At the end of Romans 7, Paul's like, who can rescue me from this body of death? It's just like, we're so corrupt. We're so evil. There's no hope without Christ. That's a great point. Thank you. Um, (coughs) Any other questions on this? Do you feel slaughtered? Do you feel killed? That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to kill you. (laughs) All right. Now you're ready to hear grace. Um, But number three, the gospel precedes the law. So, um, um, let me write this down. Okay, so the second thing that this teaches us is um, how to love God. I know I'm jumping kind of a little bit here. How to love God. And in that sense, it is very important to realize that the gospel precedes the, the law. Some of you are looking at these two things and you're thinking, that seems like a contradiction, so bear with me. Um, so the, the law has two roles, right? The first role is negative. It, the purpose of the law is to show you that you cannot obey the law. But the second point of the law is positive. It teaches us how to love God, right? It shows us this is how we, how we can do it. And the key to this is to realize, is to understand the, um, is, is to see the order, right? That the gospel precedes the law. And you see that in Exodus uh, chapter 19. So where are we? Um, Joe, can you read it? Oh, let me set this up for you. So you have no idea what you're reading. Um, okay, so Exodus 19, um, Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. And so Exodus 19 is exact, right before God gives the law. And what happened is God rescued his people out of Egypt. He led them through the wilderness, and he brought them to Mount Sinai. And so now they're right there at the base of Mount Sinai. Right? Moses is about to give them the law. So start again. I'm sorry. The people of Israel came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, 
you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be tre- you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And then immediately after this, he gives the law, the Ten Commandments, right? So it's very important to notice the chronological order because it is not the law was given first and then God rescues them. God rescues his people. It's that God rescues his people and then he gives the law. Very, very important. Because if God said in Egypt, the, the, the Israelites are slaves, if God says, here's my Ten Commandments, obey them, let me see how you do and then I'll rescue you. What is that? That's salvation by works. But what does God do? God rescues them out of Egypt unconditionally, not on the basis of any works or obedience. And then afterwards, after they're rescued, after they're redeemed, he says, here's my law. That's the order, right? That's the gospel order. Um, And you can see that emphasized in, in Exodus 19, verse 4. I have it underlined for you. He says, for I bore you on eagles' wings. I love this imagery. Um, it's a really beautiful imagery of absolute helplessness and total rescue. One of my all-time favorite movies, Lord of the Rings, right? Tolkien uh, was inspired by this imagery in the Bible. Right? You see eagles' wings all the time throughout the, the Old Testament. And there are actually um, uh, two scenes where the eagles come, the giant eagles come, at a moment when one of the characters is just at a total at rock bottom. Nothing they can do. I mean, you just think, oh, character's dead. <laughs> and then the eagles come. Does anyone know which two scenes I'm talking about? Yes. Uh, Gandalf on the tower. Um, yeah, or Thornak. Yeah, Thornak. And then uh, at the end with Frodo and Sam on the rocks with the lava. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Those two scenes, right? Yeah, <laughs> what a token nerd. <laughs> So if you look at those two scenes, right? Like, I remember when I first read the, the series, I thought, oh, this is kind of a cheat, right? Like, anytime, like, anytime there's any trouble, the eagles come. But actually, it's a really beautiful thing because every time one of the characters is absolutely helpless, totally despair, no way out, the eagles come to rescue them, right? And this is the imagery that God gives us, that he carried the people of God. He carried the Israelites on eagle's wings. And how do you get carried on eagle's wings? You just, you just go like this, right? <laughs> Actually, for Frodo and Sam, they're just carried by, in the talons, right? Um, and so, what does that emphasize? It emphasizes that we have in no way contributed to our salvation. We are totally helpless. It's completely by grace. No condition of obedience. Now, some of you who are astute are saying, oh, Wait a minute, what about verse 5? So let's look at verse 5. Why all beautiful imagery of eagle's wings, I like that. But verse 5, it says, If if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Right. So there's that if language, that conditional clause language. Right. If you obey, you will be my treasured possession. So what does this contradict eagle's wings, salvation by grace alone? And the answer is, no, of course not. <laughs> Why would God contradict himself one verse later from what he just said the previous verse? It doesn't make any sense. So God would never do that. The, the if clause there is not talking about our redeemed status. It's talking about our enjoyment of redemption, right? So if we obey, then we will happily, uh, I mean, if we obey, then we will happily enjoy 
uh, what it means to be a son of God. But we are a son of God by grace. So let me give you a quick illustration. So Judah is my boy, right? And I, all the time I say, Judah, obey me. Um, now, if Judah disobeys, which he frequently does, does he cease to become my son? No. He's always my son. I love him unconditionally because he's my son. He will never stop being my son. But when he disobeys, I am displeased. Um, when he disobeys, it, it's not good for him. It doesn't go well for him. right? He doesn't flourish and benefit. So we obey not in order to be sons of God, but to enjoy what it means to be sons of God. Does that make any sense? Okay. And therefore, that leads me to um, my summary point here. Um, religion is I obey, therefore I'm loved. Do you see the order, right? First, I, I jump through all the hoops. I, I'm a good person, and then I'm loved by God. Liberalism is I'm loved, therefore I don't need to obey. Um, God accepts me just as I am. He doesn't care how I live, right? That's that's kind of like the modern ethos. And then the gospel is radically different from both. It's a totally third way, which is I'm loved, and therefore I obey. And that's the gospel logic. And this is very important to understand because um, if you abide by the first principle, if I because I obey, I'm accepted, right? It'll make you a deeply insecure person. Because you, ne- you can never know if you've fully obeyed, right? You, you never know if you actually touched that line. And so you're insecure, you're harsh, you're, um, you're an angry person. And then when you succeed, you're cocky, you feel like you're better than everyone. And when you fail, you're devastated, right? You, you, in fact, you can't even accept failure. So religious people, moralistic people, they're extremely defensive. Because you can never tell them they're doing something wrong because you're threatening their very existence. What? I'm going to hell? No. No one can accept that, right? On the other hand, liberalism makes you deeply selfish um, because there's no cross, there's no sin, and therefore, because you don't see the magnificence of what Christ is doing for you, there's no transforming power, right? So you, you say you know the love of God, but it's so weak. Because it's a love that doesn't cost God anything. And then finally, the gospel makes you simultaneously humble and confident. Um, because at the same time, you're a sinner, so you know you're not better than anyone. In fact, you have a deep humility. You have a deep compassion for other people. You never think you're better. <coughs> but at the same time, you're bold. You're confident. Because what? You're a son of God. You're loved. The thing that we need more than anything in the world is to know that we're loved. When you know that you're loved, you can do anything. All right, so next point, final point. Uh, point number four, um, ultimately Jesus keeps the law for us on our behalf. Uh, so this is Exodus 24. This is immediately after God gives us the law. Um, I love this passage because <clears throat> it's, so inter- it's so interesting. I, I, I almost wish I could see the expression on the people's faces as this was happening. Um, Tracy, can I have you read Exodus 24? Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Yeah, so just so you guys know, he just gave them the law, right? Okay. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Yeah, did you guys hear that? So the people say, yes, we will obey you, God. Everything, all the words, not a single word will we neglect. We will obey. We pledge this. And so so Moses says, okay, and then let's, let's say God. And Moses took half of the bread and put it in the in basin, 
Oh, so 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 what's happening here? I skipped a little bit. Um, so what happens is Moses slaughters some oxen, and then he. This is the blood of the oxen, right? And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, "All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient." Yeah. Again, <laughs> right? The people say, "We will obey. We will. We 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 will be." Um, True to God, we will we will live by the covenant. And then, what does Moses do in verse eight? And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, "Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you, in accordance with all these words." Right? People said, "We will obey." And Moses takes the blood and throws it on the people. <laughs> I will obey. Blood splatters over you. No, I'm gonna obey. Blood is, is is washing over you. What's the point, right? It's such a dramatic... You know, one of the things I love about the Old Testament is that everything is, like, uh, tangible and dramatic, right? Because everything is like rituals, right? And so um, the blood on your face and on your clothes, that tells you that you need a Savior. You cannot obey. That God needs to provide a substitute who will perfectly obey the law in your place and then suffer the penalties of the law, which you deserve, and therefore he has to die. So this is the cross. This is Jesus. This is a picture of Jesus. And his blood covers over you, and therefore you are saved, you're redeemed, you know, you're accepted. I think it's a, a, a really beautiful image of the gospel. Even at the, even at the very moment of the giving of the law, God preaches the gospel to his people. And by the way, I just can't help myself as a Presbyterian, but uh, I just have to just say this. But notice that the the blood is splashed on the people. So let me just make a quick sidebar note on mode. Um, <laughs> we don't need to be immersed, right? Because the symbolism of the blood is is washing us. It just needs to be sprinkled, right? But that's just a sidebar. I can't help myself. <laughs> so this is what like people always say, where does sprinkling come from, right? Where does where does the little droplets? I Exodus twenty four. <laughs> um Is there any comments or questions? Wow, I finished yes. I wanted to say that I can't remember if this is in the gospels or if this is in Hebrews, but there's also a similar logic in which um, the speaker um, is talking about how Abraham came first mm. before Moses mm. as this idea of the gospel coming first before the law. Yeah, the promise came before the law. And that this is this is just another way of kind of illustrating the point from, from the New Testament and, you know, Jesus being the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and us being partakers in that. Yeah. And of course, the Bible also talks in other places about being true circumcision which means being true sons of God. Yeah. So, I mean, like the, the logic there that, that, that um, I think Paul talks about in Romans, right, is that the, the, the promise precedes the law, and you can never negate the promise. So the promise stands. And God says to his people, I will love you, I will save you, I will redeem you, no conditions. And then he gives the law. So the law doesn't negate the promise, right? It's the result of the promise. It's the result of the promise, yeah. We can actually talk about it a little bit more. It's a little bit more complicated, but 
Nobody wants complexity at this point right now. All right. Uh, <laughs> so, so there are there. Are, so there. So the point I want to make is there are two purposes of the law. Um, first, it shows us that we're sinners, but then second, it shows us how we can love Him. Right? Jesus said, "Let me remind you: if you love me, you will obey me." A lot of times, they, people say, "Oh, I want to love Jesus. How can I love Jesus?" Read the Decalogue. Right? Study His law. There's actually a third purpose or third use of the law that I did not mention, but now we have some time. Does anyone know what the third use of the law is? The civil use. Yes. Can you explain the civil use? That, well, essentially, because God's law applies to everyone, both Christian and non-Christian alike, um, all the kings of the earth are is are subject to him. Yes. And therefore, as kings of the earth or as the rulers who are responsible for upholding godly standards in society, they have the duty to um, submit their rulings, their justice um, to the higher justice of God. Yes. So the Ten Commandments is not just for us, his people, but it also um, teaches, it is also a guide for civil rulers, right? So like murder, that's a, you know, do not murder, that's a good principle of all society. I didn't talk about that because that's actually a, a much messier topic in my opinion. Um, and, uh, but this is enough. Any other questions? I, I didn't want to make you guys think there was also people, Pastor Michael said there are only two uses of law. What about the third use of law? What about the third use of the law, yes. <laughs> actually, it's technically the second use. So any questions? No? It's open to the floor. All right, good. I'm glad. Thank you for coming. This is the introduction. So next week, I'm going to um, dive into the first commandment and then the second commandment, and I'm really excited. Um, so let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to study the law. First, to see how deep the pit we were in from which you rescued us, um, but also to see what it means to love you to flourish as your sons. Um, help us to see that uh, the law <clears throat> is not there to constrain us, to make, uh, to take the fun out of our lives, but rather the law is there for our good so that we can be happy in you, so that we can uh, live in you, um, and therefore give us the strength, the desire to obey you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, thank you guys.